everybody. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're talking to founders, people who have built the social enterprises that are changing the way we deliver essential services in Africa. Today, we'll be chatting with Ben Bellows of Nivi. Nivi allows people to connect with health information and health services through WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or other popular messaging tools. For example, imagine a young woman in South Africa who's never used a family planning method before. She can use her phone to send a quick message to Nivi, which will respond with specific targeted answers to her questions. Put another way, Nivi provides chatbots, and they've reached over 2 million people in Nigeria, South Africa, India, and Kenya. Now, there are a lot of organizations providing chatbots these days. But what makes Nivi unique is that it's not just selling a messaging service. It's providing an ecosystem and a marketplace to engage with populations that we've never been able to reach before. People working in villages and communities who might want access to a host of different health services. Nivi recognizes that once you connect to an individual in a community, there's a certain acquisition cost or effort that's involved. But once they're in that system, say for family planning, then they can draw on a host of different health services, such as antenatal planning, vaccines, maternal health. And each of those comes at an incrementally smaller cost. Nivi is built around a model that is designed to drive down the cost while driving up the quality and comprehensiveness of the services offered. But we're going to spend most of today talking about Ben and how he found his way to Nivi. Ben is such an interesting guy that you wouldn't normally think of in the role of a technology founder. For one, he has a PhD in epidemiology. He's published over 50 peer-reviewed manuscripts, and he spent a lifetime in the public sector, putting a lot of thought and energy into the design of output-based aid programs to support reproductive health. This is a story in two parts. The first part is about Ben's research, hopes, and explorations in improving aid delivery by paying for health outcomes and how all those hopes fell apart. The second half is about the unique moment in time, the opportunity and the energy that allowed Ben to pick himself up and still invest his life in reproductive health, but to do it in a completely different way, trying to demedicalize and deinstitutionalize the work through the social enterprise NIVI. Let's begin by learning a little bit more about Ben. I mean, I grew up fairly modest means. Didn't realize it at the time. Local church group, a couple times, dropped food off our house. We got government cheese growing up. Dad was a farmer, dairy farmer, and in Michigan, in Michigan. So, and there were you know subsidies played a role in our lives. And you know, I got subsidized school lunch tokens in elementary school. I, I saw the benefit that well-structured assistance programs could have to kind of help you get by giving you the ability to do things, ability to go get a meal and, and just kind of get in the lunch line with everybody else and not have to feel left out or somehow othered. I mean, the best aid programs would bring people in. Ben had a colorful and adventurous youth bouncing around the world, trying to figure out how to apply his economics and his unique perspective to helping people. Well, I did my undergrad in, in econ and history. You know, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, 97 to 2000 in Ecuador. I was in Ecuador, I saw an opportunity learn finally some Spanish. I couldn't learn it to save my life in the classroom. So 
you know, being thrown into a village was great. <laughs> a number of eye-opening experiences, you know, growing up on a dairy farm, seeing the benefit of aid, but realizing I wanted to do something other than dairy cows for the rest of my life. <laughs> going in okay. undergrad and seeing kind of the, the theoretical, you know, supply and demand curves and the power of markets. And then what happens when sort of policies aren't in place to let markets thrive. You know, there's, there's a superstructure where markets operate mm. well in, in places where they don't because of the absence of a you know, regulatory framework for markets. And I could see that in Ecuador. I could see you know, both positives and negatives where that was playing out in very different contexts. And sometimes stepping outside a familiar, you know, familiar area and putting yourself in a new context helps see things differently. And it certainly did for me. Um, and so then I got back to the States and was at CDC what was it, a year and a half during 9-11, um, and then pulled up stakes, hopped on a bicycle, rode across the United States, and went to California to grad school. For the next 15 years, both through his PhD dissertation and through much of his work with Population Council, Ben's focus was on reproductive health and on building the right incentives and economic structures to motivate for better outcomes. This is when he honed a lot of his thinking around results-based financing and output-based aid. He was asking the question, instead of just paying for another training or another program, can we pay people, can we incentivize them based on actually improving health outcomes? Now, the story of Ben and the story of how Nivi would be born wouldn't be complete without talking about the moment in which Ben lost faith in the traditional ways of delivery aid. We all have these moments when you've been working in the sector long enough. Invariably, you run up against that moment in time where you realize just how broken the system can be. Ben was in Nairobi during a groundbreaking moment of change when Kenya rolled out an aid program that was based on outcomes. Let's pay organizations on the basis of the number of healthy pregnancies delivered. This was a whole new way of structuring an aid program to get the market incentives to line up with the health outcomes we want. And then Ben had to watch as this program, which was the subject of his studies, turned into a political nightmare. You talk about you know, moments of failure or disappointment. There was a moment when Kenyatta was elected, President Kenyatta was elected in 2013. And the, it was a time of change and there was a sense of um, direction after series of you know, five years of kind of countervailing forces and, and this coalition government that had been formed in, in 2007-8. This was, this was uh, kind of a, a unidirectional government. And, um, and so there's this commitment uh, to do things newly and do things, try to try new ideas in this first 100 days. And the output-based approach, the OBA program, this voucher program, which had been subsidizing roughly about 10% of all births at one point in, in Kenya, was this model funded creatively through debt cancellation from German Development Bank, KFW in German letters, and, mm -hmm. um, and the Ministry of Health and the government of Kenya. So this OBA program, it served as a model been running since 2006 or so. And it was an opportunity to take this forward, this idea of doing output-based approaches, you know, paying for outputs, uh, which should have knock-on benefits on the health outcomes. Yeah, and that's such an underutilized mechanism in the aid sector. It is, but it needs, this is something we saw in the evidence, you know, the design means a lot, getting the design right. And it was a moment where had we, I think, been a bit more, you know, if I'd 
kicking myself for not being more proactive, going and knocking on doors and, and saying something more about it. Because I think what ultimately happened was the ministry took certain aspects of this, um, paying for numbers, and didn't take other aspects, the verification of those numbers critically. And it led to the situation where in the public sector, under free maternity care, public hospitals would report the number of births and then be paid based on the number of normal deliveries, those uncomplicated uh, deliveries, complicated births, and and even um, cesarean sections or C-sections. And so they were different prices. Uh Uh-oh. I feel like I know where this is going. Oh, yeah. You can see it already, right? Yeah. Lack of accountability, no claims-based process to, to verify numbers, and suddenly you get all kinds of wild accusations of, of mismanagement and fast forward two years and USAID mm-hmm. had uh, basically well, the proper term here, but um, broken off direct engagement with the ministry of health with accusations of millions of dollars being embezzled because of this lack of accountability. And it all stems, well, I don't know if it all stems, but it's you know not having the design right at the beginning led to these unfortunate outcomes down the road there was a disengagement uh, USAID funds into the Ministry of Health because of concerns around the misappropriation of funds. Wow. Be a better term for it, misappropriation of funds in, um, in, in, in different aspects under the free maternity care program. I did step back and take a lesson, take a point in making sure what you can do on the research side has some sort of practical or tactical impact on, on populations that could benefit in some way from this. And yet, at the same time that this fiasco was unfolding in Kenya, a completely different kind of energy was emerging in the private sector. That change, that momentum, that optimism in Kenya would eventually be enough to pick Ben up off his feet and get him to dive into a whole new adventure. And that change was evident even going back to 2009, the year that Ben moved to Nairobi to study output-based aid. 2009 was an interesting year. So I don't, it, was, it was a moment, decision, taking up a new job. And, and the, the month I landed in Nairobi was the same month that Sea uh, Cables connected broadband internet to East Africa, to Kenya. Sea um, you know, Cables were connected in Mombasa. Yes. And, um, and there was this moment, and it happened. There was announcements in the paper. But it just was a it was a milestone in the sense that here was here was finally the means to bring all that comes with the internet and all of its richness and you know, pros and cons and all the rest of it connecting 100 million people in East Africa. Ultimately, it's very exciting for sure. And for those younger people in our audience who might not even remember what it was like to not have broadband, I remember before that that cable was connected. Is like you wanted to download a. 25 megabyte mm-hmm. driver update and you just had to wait for <laughs> a day or multiple days in order to get something like that like very very basic things <laughs> um, or what we would consider basic now it would just it would it was it was impossible to get and the bringing of high speed internet you know to the con- to to all of east africa and then mm-hmm. you know laying the laying the groundwork to connect the rest of africa that was that was a transformative moment it was like a core piece of infrastructure which really was a leap ahead for 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 the African continent when it landed, it was no. That's a good point. It's good to have some perspective on how quickly things have changed and, <laughs> and improved. Uh, suddenly, here was an opportunity to see the quality improve. Right, the, the the bandwidth noticeably stepped up. 
within a few months uh, in the office. How did you experience that? Was that were you dreading how how bad the internet was going to be, and then you showed up and you saw all these new businesses popping up everywhere? Like, what was your experience of that change in the country? Well, I kept hearing people talk about how bad things were, and I'm like, what are you talking about? This is so bad. <laughs> They must have been so pissed at you. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, yeah. I mean, been, yeah. Um, oh, man. The luck of the draw. So in Kenya, Sea Gables land in 2009. M-Pace had already started as a mobile money as, a, as an innovation in 2007. So there was already kind of that groundwork and excitement around it. And then 2010, the iHub gets set up. And there was just this, this innovations hub. It was a community center of sorts, right? An incubator. And... There were not, you know, it was NILAB and a couple of other centers where people could come together and, and, and kind of coalesce in community around innovative ideas and find new, new spaces and, and places to, to, to explore. Uh, so digital starts taking off. Nice. Yeah, I really have the sense that period of time in Nairobi was hot. <laughs> yeah. That's really when like some of the, the big you know, tech organizations you hear about now, they were, just, they were just getting off the ground and everybody wanted to be in that space. And there was so much excitement in the air and you and you were there for that you're yeah. you're you're sitting right there <laughs> you could feel it happening about a about a, a mile or half mile down from from the ihub uh at the population council office and it was it was head it was a heady time um i mean personally i could see the quality of broadband improving you could see the prices eventually come down about a year 18 months into this um and you could see these knock-on benefits mm. the begin seeing the what happens as is broadband transforms or introduces new ways of, of thinking about healthcare, for instance, or education yeah. or uh, agriculture uh, and certainly commerce. And, and it was it was an exciting time. I met Wayne Voda uh, in 2011 or 12, and, and we started talking about the tech salons. Um, so we started hosting uh, oh. tech salons in, in the Nairobi, in the Pop Council office in Nairobi. Um, oh, no yeah. way. You were the host for the Nairobi tech salon. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. It was a lot of fun. For the benefit of the audience, it was like a gathering of like the, the techies, particularly I think working in digital development uh, in a particular region, they would get together and share ideas and sort of scheme about how to save the world through digital. Right. That whole space. <laughs> <laughs> Did you figure it out? Did you, oh, we, always... we had all kinds of solutions by the end of the hour. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you just needed to build them. and you know. Just need to go out and implement them. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> but one of those implementations. Uh -huh. So I tried my hand at digital as well in this time. Uh, there was a Saving Lives at Birth grant. It's had five or six partners, USAID, World Bank, and others got together and formed this consortium that focused on those moments around maternity, pregnancy, and postnatal period, and that and looking for ideas that could could drive change, and improve birth outcomes, and, and, and infant uh, survivability and survive improve, uh, reduce mortality rates, um, uh, in the first thousand days. So we, mm -hmm. a colleague of mine, Eric Green in the New York and pop council, New York office hit on an idea of using interactive voice response or IVR in 2011. And when everybody was doing messaging, he wanted mm -hmm. to get into IVR. I thought, well, this is a little airbrained, but all right, let's try it. <laughs> That's like when like a woman in the community calls a machine and the machine answers right. and says, hello, exactly. can I tell you whatever <laughs> and that okay, was it gotcha. that was exactly it so the idea was to put out information there there's a resource available and if you have questions uh, you can enroll in this program and we will send pre-recorded audio clips you can listen to it'll ask you questions you key press responses one for yes three for no that sort of thing and work through a menu and an audio menu 
to answer a few questions at the end of the day, help us help you understand is that pregnancy proceeding as normal? I mean, there's, or is it kind of a, you know, certain signs or symptoms that ought to be looked into? Not urgent, but you know, go, go to your next, uh, mention at your next A&C visit, antenatal care visit, or this is urgent and please go see someone quickly. And so we had this sort of triage system for helping pregnant mothers understand where they were with respect to the pregnancy. And, and it was, we called it baby monitor. It was maybe a rather uninventive name, but if you Google it these days, of course, it comes up with all these devices to actually listen in on your sleeping baby. <laughs> I was going to say, I have a baby monitor. <laughs> Different yeah, kind, but please. Different kind. <laughs> but it was, um, it was a fun project. And, you know, we ran it against, we, there was a cohort of 90 women we recruited, ran a study in Nairobi and compared the questions they were answering to what nurse would take it in, uh, a nurse would, would capture the intake in charge times. And I, I'm actually doing mm. this at Jacaranda. And it it was comparable. We'd get similar information and similar kinds of information from the women responding to the phone prompts as they would respond to the nurse. In fact, on mental health markers, it was better in the sense that they were more willing to confide in the phone than they were to another person about depression. They oh, that's interesting. I guess because they, they don't have to worry about judgment or, or you know, what is this person going to think about me as a machine? So you talk to the machine. Talk right? to the machine. And, and that was <laughs> our key press responses and saying, yes, I am feeling down these days. <laughs> huh. Was that your first experience uh, building a, a technology system or did you do tech? Did you have other projects in the past like that? It was it was the first time I saw tech introduced to solve a problem around or challenge around um, maternal health services. I've been studying vouchers. All these vouchers gotcha. were in all these countries were variations on one theme. How do you subsidize access to labor and delivery and sort of ancillary services, yeah. including antenatal care and postnatal care uh, to have a complete package? Um, and so I've been looking at what it means to serve consumers, you know, in this case, reducing financial barriers. Mm-hmm. And now Eric's project that I was coordinating, in effect, in, out of the Nairobi office, mm-hmm. was looking at how do you introduce information through digital channels uh, to help unlock better health outcomes for pregnant mothers. And, um, and so that was, yeah, that the first time. I'm not a programmer. Um, yeah, I used to write <laughs> state of code. But you must have had a positive experience. Clearly, like, you started working a lot more in tech after this Saving Lives at Birth project. Right? It was, well, it's interesting. So Saving Lives at Birth, we ran the project. <laughs> As one does, it ran for mm-hmm. two years. We got favorable technical findings and mm-hmm. then wrote the report and that was it. We didn't have a business model. We didn't have... Yeah, I mean, as so yeah. many projects do, you know. And it was frustrating. Money's gone, wrap it up, go home. So it was it was mm-hmm. frustrating to say, here's something that works and now we're going to stop. Um, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. But you didn't. So we... Right. Or did you? I was a little persistent, you know, you got to be a little entrepreneurial again in this space. <laughs> and I would uh-huh. run into folks from Merck for Mothers and, and the consulting arm that they worked with, Raven Martin, um, folks from Raven Martin. And, and we would talk about what Merck for Mothers, this philanthropic initiative that started in 2012 as a spinoff from Merck or MSD, mm-hmm. the U.S. Merck, not the, not the German Merck. And it was a half a billion dollar, 10 year initiative they started in 2012 to address um, maternal health and, and both in emerging markets, low and income countries, and domestically in the States. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to folks at uh, Addis, uh, Addis a Family Planning Conference in 2013. Started talking about, well, what are you learning from Baby Monitor? Is there something here that could work maybe for family planning? And these sort of conversations happened intermittently. You know, we 
put one application in it didn't make it out of kenya at one point i think 2014 but by around 2015 as i was moving to, to to lusaka for a new position with population council there this idea of what became nivi kind of took root i i met our third co-founder uh, sid goyle he was an at the time, an entrepreneur in residence in, in Nairobi. We've been put in touch I, probably through Texalon. I don't really remember now. <laughs> Interesting. I'm pretty sure it was Texalon, actually. Do you remember um, what, your, what your first impression of, of him is? Because he's now the CEO. He's of the Nibby, CEO. Yeah. Right? No. Siddharth? I, Sid, yeah. yeah he's, uh, when you walked him and you saw him, did you think this guy was going to be the guy? Well, yeah. There was something about him that was different from the NGO crowd, if I could, if I can group us all in that sort of uh, characterization. <laughs> and, you know, there was... That's definitely our crowd. <laughs> <laughs> it was just different in the sense that, you know, there was that, as I got to know later, just this this awareness around price and cost and where mm. the equilibrium or a certain margin uh, on the revenue side could make the difference between an idea being shelved, like Baby Monitor, and an idea taking off, like Nibby. And so... Right. Like he actually worried about like, who's going to pay for this? And is this a reasonable cost, this intervention? It's not just like, does it work or not? Is it, does it work as well as other interventions for the price that you're paying for it? Like what's the return on investment? Who potentially would be interested in, in using the product? How much are they willing to pay for? What, what purpose do they have in using your tool versus a different tool? Ultimately, what are they trying to achieve? It's not the use of yeah. a particular tool is not the end in itself. The use of a tool is to achieve some other objective. And so that sort of, mm. I guess, I assume some someone covers in business school uh, was something that I <laughs> had to learn on the job, uh, as it were. And it's it's been really <laughs> a nice, it's been a very interesting, been a rewarding, satisfying way of kind of bookending my research work with Population Council and thinking more about what yeah. the business end of public health looks like. Uh, yeah, and it's great to have a, a partner on the road or some yeah. partners on on that journey. Did oh, you guys yeah. hit it off immediately, or yeah. was there a period of feeling each other out and wondering, like, is this guy for real? No, it was. We met. I mean, this is this is kind of Nairobi. It's a Nairobi story. We met at a Nairobi Java House in Upper Hill, uh, and by the end of the uh -huh. first hour, it was like, hey, let's try and do something here that's consumer facing. I was telling him about that's vouchers. Amazing. It was. It was. It that's really, awesome. Yeah, we that's incredible. Off. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, oh, wow. Nairobi. <laughs> nice. What was, at what point did it start to feel like a proper effort organization? You know, like there's one thing, two guys get together, they have like a cool idea. They have mm -hmm. a research, uh, you know, they have the outcomes from your saving lives at birth grants. Mm -hmm. At what point did it start to feel more real than that set of conversations? I think when I started getting feedback from people I knew and getting a sense of, oh, you guys are doing this differently. And it was, it was just moments. Again, there's just again, mm. little signals, or maybe they're not even signals. It's just something I'm picking up as a signal. But comments that people <laughs> what were, were you making. What were you doing differently? Well, I mean, Sid was approaching it as a, as a startup. So we incorporated Nivi uh, October 2016. It had an initial kind of proof of concept pilot under the Population Council in 2015. Was there champagne? Were there fireworks? Was there a baptism? Of some kind? <laughs> was there a baptism of fireworks? <laughs> it was definitely... I'd say just seeing that oh we've incorporated there's there's now a register you know a registered entity called Nivi Inc. in Delaware. I mean it was just like you know, there are certain milestones becoming you know shareholder in this this enterprise and seeing that kind of take off and, and thinking huh all right I 
telling the council, hey, I've got to reduce my time so I can do it, dedicate more time independently to what we want to do at NIVI. And you know, they, Bob Council again was very accommodating um, in that respect. Oh, that's great. Allowing graciously allowing that sort of free time to, to build this business out. So there were milestones there. And then, you know, our, our initial, I'd say, angel investor, Merck for Mothers, we approached this not as a grant, but as a really not equity opportunity for them. And so trying to get them to think differently. Huh. Is that how they invested? Uh, initially, uh, in the first round, it was it was more on taking a, a small uh, stake in the business and seeing this, seeing this grow. So that was fascinating. It was, you know, aid evolved. Uh, yeah, it was definitely a moment to try and get other people to think differently. And I think that's really <laughs> been what we've, that's been our our purpose. I mean, that's ultimately what drives me is to try and see change happen in the development sector, recognizing we're not only operating in development. We are also looking at you know, ways to grow in the commercial space, ways to contribute to businesses uh, and entities that are are scaling infrastructure, scaling services, scaling products uh, in these emerging markets. We want to be part of that emergence uh, and support that as much as we can on the platform. Nice. And you've talked a bit about this idea that you are looking more directly at the problem of of return on investment, of pricing and sustainability in a way that a lot of grants and a lot of aid sector projects don't do. Mm-hmm. What is it about the NIVI approach? Like what is what is the the core there that you're you're latching onto? Is it is it is it something about understanding the the consumer's willingness to buy? Is it something about being able to quantify the health impact and you know attribute a, a cost factor against it? Um, I'd love to hear you elaborate a bit more on that uh, that that unique aspect of what you're you're doing with Nivi that a traditional aid project doesn't do. Well, there's a, a couple of different things we can think about from a business model and then maybe from the product side as well um, that differentiate Nivi from say, a development project on the one hand and maybe a pure commercial play on the other. I think we're effectively in some ways bridging those two spaces. A lot of what projects do, first of all, is have a timeline. I come up with a Gantt chart or a timeline and before they even break ground and it's all planned out. Sure. What they're going to do month by month for the next 36 months or next 60 months. And it's, mm-hmm. it's all Even been budgeted. Indicators. There's no room for error. <laughs> I mean, there, yes, things end up going over schedule or over, maybe over budget certain line <laughs> items, but it's, it's all been planned out. And what, and so that's a different approach that doesn't have the flexibility that one needs to build into one's product for the reality that we're working in. Uh, we're also, mm-hmm keenly aware that in these markets our customer may not be our consumer yes that's the trickiness isn't it yeah that's been an you important someone insight. in a community in kenya or nigeria that you're serving maybe they don't have the purchasing power um, that you need but there's lots of actors that are investing in supporting that that woman exactly. in that village and so like how do you align everything so that we we can serve her um, and we can pay for it at the same time well, a lot of money is already so going in part. to serve mm-hmm. that woman in that village and you know, these uh, serve populations of uh, various socioeconomic mm-hmm. gradients and in, in, in various states of, of, of well-being. A lot of money is going in. The question is, how do you distribute resources effectively? And distribution isn't just pushing out. It's also calibrating that distribution based on feedback from the, you know, the person on the other end of that distribution pipeline. And so effective distribution is coordinated yes. distribution. It's, it's one that's speaking to and listening as well. 
listening from, <laughs> listening to uh, <laughs> the, the beneficiaries, for lack of a better word, or the other person that you're engaging with. There's there's reciprocity there. And I think for us, it was challenging to build that out technically, and we're still working on that. But from a business model perspective, understanding that who we serve, the consumers, may in fact not be the ones who value that service or pay for that service. They're, they're certainly going to value it. They're going to find enrichment, and they demonstrate that through engagement with the product. Use the product is, speaks volumes to the value of the product, but they don't have the means to pay mm -hmm. for it. And so that's where market mm -hmm. failure, in one sense, comes in, or rethinking what the marketplace ought to be is perhaps a better way to, to approach mm -hmm. the problem. And finding there are organizations, yeah. certain nonprofits, but also for profits and state agencies that have a purpose, and the purpose being to serve those populations. Well, if they can use NIVI to affect or do the jobs they need to get done, well, then they'll naturally want to buy what we have and try and build it out of their own budgets. And that's the premise. Yeah, I definitely hear you on the tension between their customer not having the purchasing power. And the other thing you said there that I thought was quite fascinating that I just want to pull out a bit more is that business of knowing that we're meeting her needs, you know, that woman in the community. And what's really unique about Nivi's approach, I mean, maybe there's a few different actors in the chatbot space, but we understand that woman. We're interacting with her. We, we know something about her and platforms like yours can be used to give her a voice in a way that other programs like let's hand out bed nets right. <laughs> is right. it, that's more of a one directional interaction, whereas you have a two directional interaction. Mm -hmm. And there's something about how that plays out, some, something about the fact that she's the one driving engagement and usage of the platform, which really could turn the dynamics of this broken aid system on its head. You know, there's like a, a real metric that can actually be measured, which shows like, is there interest, is there uptake of this platform? And I think that's that's an incredibly powerful thing that your approach takes. Have you encountered much skepticism along the way? People who hear chatbots, why or like AI, like reaching out to all these direct to consumers in these poor communities. Have you encountered that kind of reaction much? Invariably, they, the question someone will ask is, "Well, what do you do about people who don't have phones?" <laughs> it's a question. It's met well. It comes from a sincere place, and it's an honest question about you know what really is the size of your market and who are you serving. And the truth mm -hmm. is, we're reaching people who have the means to be reached. And my response to that is, get the model right. And, and we're still working on getting the model, refining the model. I'd say we have got a pretty good foundation at this point. But refining the model, working with the mm -hmm. populations you can reach today, because tomorrow it's going to be different. That was the other insight, if you will, or kind of impression I took away from living in East Africa. Uh, it was a pace of change. I, you know, I'd come back and see family in, in Michigan at different points. And, you know, so much of mid-Michigan felt unchanged. In fact, felt in some cases a bit worse. You know, the, the General Motors factory had closed in Lansing in 2009. You know, like it felt a little derelict, in fact. But there wasn't that sort of rapid progression I was seeing in Nairobi. And of course, real estate, but roads, and infrastructure, the broadband. I mean, businesses coming up right and left, right and center. The city being transformed. The skyline different every time. Um, you know, I'd go out on a trip and come back. And it was just, it was, it was, it's, it's a heady space. And, and, and the knock-on benefits would be noticeable over you know, several years and even rural areas. You, know, you see what the, the GDP additionality that comes from, from having in available and being able to channel money out. So 
it was just a, it was a, it's a fascinating space to get into, and it and it really spoke to the importance of being able to meet and, and engage consumers with where they're at. Because it, if we can meet them now, as the macroeconomics continue to improve, access improves, we can continue to innovate and and reach the next the next the next segment, the next consumer out. And it might you know, our model nice. now of going through WhatsApp. Um, may change, you know, uh, you know the, the the medium at which the means by which we distribute what we do can can evolve mm-hmm. with the time. But you have to be in the marketplace if, for that sort of evolution to take place. And so, anybody who comes back and says, "Well, what about people without phones?" We're like, we need to be there first, and then we'll we'll work on this problem together. I asked Ben, "What are you excited about? What are you looking forward to?" I'm, I'm excited about the dynamics and sort of interplay between what we have on the product side and what we have with our deepening and kind of maturing understanding of market um, and market opportunities, mm-hmm. who our customers mm-hmm. are, who can benefit from this. And, and that's been expanding and it's been rewarding. Uh, the satisfaction comes from, I've been asked about this at different points, you know, the satisfaction comes from being able to leave something that leaves the place better than you found it. Absolutely. That's all we hope for. And that's why I got into public health. It's why I wanted to do Peace Corps in a sense. I mean, it's why I want to do what I'm doing. I I hope that what we're building at the end of the day is leaving the world in some way better off than it was before. And that's the aspiration here. And so what we're doing is not so much my job as it is kind of a calling in a sense. I hope that's, that's why I do it. And I think that's why a lot of people get into whatever they're you know, startups or an NGO or government service there. Some people feel compelled to do what they're doing because of that sense. I'm you know, leaving something, you know, leaving the place, uh, leaving the world a little bit better. So that's, that's where I get the satisfaction. And so when I hear <laughs> confirmation bias, uh, but I hear that someone's like, ah, this <laughs> in fact did help uh, that this is providing a service. We are getting additional, we're providing a service that in the absence of the company would not have been provided. You know, a lot of our young uh, users are, are coming on board and if we ask about previous contraceptive use, 70, 80% in some cases are saying we you know, never had contraception, never used contraception. So being able to help, at least in that family planning space, help someone who otherwise mm-hmm. would not have had the information or otherwise would not have been reached, that to me feels satisfying. Mm-hmm. Being able to find uh, women, engage women on pregnancy information earlier in their pregnancy. We've got some very early mm-hmm. data out of Nigeria where we've launched an antenatal care maternity journey, pregnancy journey, mm-hmm. that the women reached by Nivi in the community, in some ways not surprising, but reached in the community are earlier in their pregnancy, uh, earlier along in their pregnancy than women who are going to facility and onboarding to Nivi there. That makes so much sense. It's so much easier to do it over WhatsApp than to check out to a clinic. Right? It's where people are it's at. It's so daunting for a young woman to go to clinic. can be. And then and knowing where to go and how to undertake that journey, uh, particularly for the first pregnancy. And here's a chance to, to serve as a companion and to provide a resource that you know, gestationally relevant information, support on the referrals, and, and soliciting feedback on the, on the you know, three different data points you want to understand. But the objective, again, think about what the objective is, that we help a woman earlier in her pregnancy, as early as possible, um, initiate that ANC journey, antenatal care journey, and then complete all recommended eight visits and 
make it to a facility on time to avoid those you know, three delays that we talk about in maternal health and you know, the delay in deciding to seek care or recognizing the need to seek care, the delay once you're inbound to a facility because of lack of transport, delays in that setting, and delay being seen properly. Maybe hopefully can mm-hmm. help overcome uh, each of those three delays. So, you know, those are, those are the sorts of things, nice. you know, treatment adherence, kind of re-engagement that we want to build out further and generalize, not just within reproductive and maternal health, but thinking about primary health and getting into leveraging marketing principles to power our ability to re-engage consumers and help them along different health journeys and kind of a, a wider set of topics. And I think that's a big differentiator between what most of the chatbots out there do versus what a solution like Nivi is doing already, which is we have permanence. We have memory of the user. We're not... We're not a web-based chat experience that's regurgitating the frequently asked questions from that website. Uh, and so by mm-hmm. being able to re-engage the user, critically because we have their WhatsApp number uh, or their Facebook Facebook Messenger ID, we're able to re-engage on, on where they left off in their health journey and provide recommendations and support for that next step. So that for us is really important. I see. That sounds like a really key part of what you're trying to do here. We're going to switch over to the rapid fire questions now just to wrap up the show. First question for you, Ben, is if you have an ask or request for donors or investors who fund social enterprises like Nivi. Ask about user acquisition cost. <laughs> Think at the end of the day, what <laughs> are you pricing? How are you pricing your, your philanthropy or your investment? I mean, the investor side, the VCs will understand this very well. But I think on the donor side, there's often um, underappreciation of what acquiring users and the distribution costs are on information and service awareness. Definitely. Definitely. Advice. If you could take a step back in time and give your younger self advice on Nivi and the work that you're doing with Nivi, what would you, what would you say? Invest in Google early on. Don't sell the Tesla stock. (laughs) Bitcoin? (laughs) Yeah, keep the Bitcoin. Up to a point. Um, If only. (laughs) If only. I mean, there were, there were different points where Hindsight's twenty twenty, and and any particular problem could have been overcome if I'd seen it six months in advance. What would I tell myself earlier? You see, at one point I would have thought that programming would have been the thing I need to learn. Well, I can hire that out, mm. right? We've got a team that does that now, it does it more effectively than I ever would have. Nice. I'm constantly evolving, and I'm not evolving. I'm I find that I'm learning new things, and sometimes I'm learning because I have to. I've got mm-hmm. new constraints on what I can do or new opportunities open themselves up. So I have to take each day as it comes. I maybe keep better notes. <laughs> <laughs> That'll come in handy for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to offer a shout out to someone who has inspired or guided your work? Someone who guided my work with Nivi. Um, certainly want to thank Mark for Mothers. Uh, Mark Allen's been uh, a very strong supporter uh, of what we're doing at Nivi. I have to acknowledge that you know, the, the people I worked with at the Population Council were supportive in their own way back in the day, certainly working with Ian Askew and Charlotte Warren and John Townsend and Harry Barungi out of the, uh, in the Kenny office. It was, there were a number of folks who inspired me with the work they're doing that really serve as a, a model on how to approach things. My advisor at Berkeley, Malcolm Potts, um, prior to prior to leaving California, I mean, is there was a moment, again, moments, um, we had an on-campus conversation uh, 
2005 or six. And I was talking about, there was a, there was a informal meeting about family planning. I think Gopi Gopalakrishna might've been visiting campus at that point. It was Gopi was instead of his own work. It previously been with Janani and DKT in India, friend of Malcolm's and had come to campus and we were having some meeting and, and somebody made the point and I suggest, well, why aren't doctors allowing, you know, pills over the counter kind of thing. It was just kind of a, a very naive comment about access to, to some forms of birth control. And Malcolm kind of got red in the face and turned around and before he's my advisor. And he's like, you have to demedicalize these things. And it just was a moment where the importance of when there's low harm, low risk products that are, have been over-regulated and the, the, the inability to allow the market to solve some of these problems kind of stood out to me. And that, that hmm. moment, I'm I'm not conveying the, conveying it well enough, but it just stuck with me. The demedicalization, being able to provide advice uh, to consumers in a way that is empowering for them, allows them to make better informed decisions on on what they want to do uh, with respect to their health and their health goals. So I'd have to just acknowledge um, Malcolm's offhand comment of whenever it was 15 years ago uh, for sticking with me all these years. Nice. That's incredible. It really is, you know, can you imagine? It really is those comments that happen just mm-hmm. randomly that really steer the course of someone's life. Mm-hmm. You know, the ripple effects of such things. Yep. Uh, and I'm sure it'll be incredible if they if they hear about it later, just to know the impact that they had on, on your lives or on other lives. That's awesome to hear. Mm-hmm. In terms of life hacks, uh, do you have a habit that you've adopted in your life to keep yourself going, keep yourself effective, productive, or motivated? Yeah, life hacks. I carve out about a half an hour to an hour just to get some exercise. During the pandemic, at one point, for about 16 months, I I made a point to run two miles every day. My knees eventually said no after uh, (laughs) I'm so sorry. Uh, It (laughs) It sounded good up until that point. (laughs) But it was... (laughs) It was really helpful just to clear my mind. And I started picking it back up. It took off about six weeks just to let my body kind of recover. But, um, and it was, it was an offhand comment that I think Peter Park had made in an interview. He's a guy running a startup out of Nairobi. And he and I have been in touch over the years. And, and, and he said something about running, a, making a point to run a mile every day just to get out and get a little bit of exercise. Yes. And, and I was, yeah. did that during the pandemic. And I found it very helpful with this transition, with the uncertainty that we're all experiencing, the sort of, stressors associated with the uncertainty mm. just to pause go out and sit the, the routine of exercise for me helped clear the head clear the mind a bit and i found it useful um and then really like yeah. I put the phone down and they set the laptop down i don't do this nearly enough what but what? put it down Sorry, pick ahead. up a book <laughs> and just pick up something Whoa. random topics i'm reading a great one now born Born in Blackness, um, Howard French read this book about the interaction between Europe and, and various a- African states and um, the trauma that that interaction had, as well as the importance of that interaction on where the world is today. And so I, I found it an incredibly enlightening exploration of the last 400 years from a slightly different perspective, uh, centered more on Africa. Fascinating. And, uh, yeah, it was, Highly recommend to pick it up. So, yeah. Nice. Good to know. Last question for you, Ben. What is one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in this industry? I am 
stalker for newsletters now. <laughs> Substacks, to... mediums. <laughs> I found Substack to be pretty useful actually lately. Um, and then looking just to keep up the M- MIT technology review. I scan that newsletter every day. Um, Johns Hopkins has got one on global health that I get. So there are these summaries that land in my inbox in the morning. I find incredibly useful just to take stock of where things nice. are at. Um, so. Is there a particular Substack that you like? Oh, there's a range of them. There's this guy, James Follows. He's a <laughs> former speechwriter for Carter. It's kind of off topic. He doesn't really tell me much about what's happening in tech, but I love his insight on culture and politics here in the States. So I find that refreshing as well. Fascinating. Cool. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you so much for making time to be on the show, Ben. If guests want to find out more about you or about the work of Nivy, what's the best way to do that? Shoot me an email. Uh, ben at nivy.io. Oh, boy. Uh, reach out, ask questions, set up a phone call, and we'll take it from there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. Marina, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's just too easy for those of us working in healthcare technology to focus too much on that one particular problem we're trying to solve or that one tool we're trying to build. But you know with Ben, this epidemiologist, economist, researcher, He's looking at the whole ecosystem, the whole market, the big picture of how these services scale and how do we make healthcare more affordable. There's something in that approach for other innovators. Just thinking through, how does what I do fit in the whole ecosystem and the whole market of a person's experience of healthcare delivery? I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't, do nothing. We'll see you again in two weeks.